Station 2 Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. We also have a special guest, an MD-PhD student and host of your new favorite SciComm pod in plain English. It's Jamie Maffa. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us this morning, this night. Wait, hold on. The, the kayfabe is this is night. <laughs> I was going to say it's really funny that this is the Science Night podcast, and I literally went from my bed to my chair you know, to record it. People might listen at night. You never know. Yeah, but maybe. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Tonight, we got some munchies on the mind, and in the second half, we're going to talk about how some tiny goggles might make mice happy or terrified. We have so much to cover, so let's get into it. Well, before we get into this science communication aspect of our science communication podcast, I think we got to talk to our new best friend, Jamie, who is an MD-PhD student studying neuroscience, my favorite of the anatomical sciences. Of course, I have a long track record with definitely saying I'm not terrified by neuroscience. <laughs> but anyway, Jamie, let's let's talk about you. Talk about what you do in neuro and your podcast in playing English, because I love this concept. Yeah. Um, so I am a neuroscience uh, MD-PhD student, which means I will be in school for the rest of forever. My family is like, when are you going to be done? I'm like, I don't know. But yeah, I am actually in the anesthesiology department at my uh, university at WashU, and I am studying the neuroscience of pain. So how do our brains like interpret pain signals? How do our brains modify pain signals? Because your brain can actually kind of modify the pain signals that are coming up from your body to either make it, you know, more painful, like, oh, you really need to pay attention to this, or less painful, like, oh, you've got this covered, or you're running from a bear and you don't have time to worry about that cut on your leg. So um, that's more or less what I study. And um, I do that by um, actually using gene editing technology. So if you've ever heard of CRISPR, it's a fun, relatively new way to edit genes. And I'm using that to delete a little protein in neurons in a part of the brain that responds to opioids. So you probably heard of opioids. You get them, you know, when you go have a procedure done um, or some people get them for fun. And that's a big problem, but that's not really what I study. Your body also makes them. Your brain makes opioids. And this is part of how it can control the pain signals that you are, you are feeling. So I'm going to use fancy CRISPR technology to delete the opioid receptor and then see what that does to how these mice are, are experiencing pain. That's kind of what I do science-wise. I love that. And speaking of it's speaking amazing. of pain, you're trying to take the pain out of neuroscience by taking all that jargon away with it in your podcast. So why don't you talk a little bit about in plain English? Yeah. So I also have a science communication podcast. I have been doing that for two and a half years now, which is kind of crazy. But I started in 2021, and the general idea of in plain English is 
Yes, exactly. To take sort of the the jargon and the you know all the those like barriers to entry for the average person away from science, and it's not just neuroscience. I bring on experts in all sorts of different fields. We've had anthropologists. We've had like a mechanical engineer who's doing um you know as- like literally rocket science. We've had on you know so many different people in so many different fields, and they explain a paper in their field to two guests who know nothing about the subject. So they have to really try to make it approachable for these guests who are just, you know, interested in the topic, but don't know all of the inside jargon. So it ends up being a really fun conversation. And really, you know, we can get into some really interesting and like deep conversations about the science without it being so unapproachable, which I think is really cool. And I think is something that was missing from a lot of at least science communication media that I'd seen is that either it was this really like technical jargon and also usually paywalled scientific articles, or it was articles that you'd see in pop science websites or like in newspapers that would really dumb down the science so much that it wasn't engaging with the material in a way that I thought was very meaningful or that would really bring people into the conversation. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring people into the conversation and tell them like, hey, you can understand this too. You can talk with the scientists about this too. You have enough knowledge. Us, the scientists, just need to like eliminate some of the barriers to entry. I love that so much. Jason, I could see you swelling with pride as she's using all the talking points from any communication training that you've ever done in your career. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't even trained, Jamie. It's fantastic. I love the fact... I come pre-trained. That's right. I love it. I love the fact that uh, that this kind of information is getting out there as to how... You know, there's evidence-based ways to be more effective at communicating science or complicated scientific information to a general audience. And I love the fact that people are using those approaches, right? And so, yes, swelling with pride is right. Although it's not pride uh, for anything personal here. It's just for science with a capital S. I think it's fantastic. I love it, too, because oftentimes you see that the articles that make it into mainstream press, they kind of blow the context out of proportion mm-hmm. yeah. to get it there. And then that's really hard, <laughs> To kind of get people, because then everything's conveyed as a breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. And so people are expecting that science is advancing in these kind of unrealistic leaps and bounds. Um, And then when they are faced with the reality of how science works, which is more gradual, more like, you know, building off of steps that people have done previously, it kind of makes it seem like, oh, that's not as exciting or, you know, on the even more harmful end of that spectrum, like that isn't something that I should trust because it's not what science has been shown to me in the media. And so, I mean, actually the most recent episode of the podcast was not the kind of episode I was just describing, but I was interviewing another SciComm person, um, Will Nyam of the Reproducibility podcast. And we were talking about exactly that because we were talking about how that kind of sensationalism harms reproducibility in science because then you're like scientists are also kind of internalizing this expectation to make these huge giant breakthroughs. Yeah. And then they aren't submitting funding for reproducibility. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, so. part of the problem there is that journals don't want to publish those papers, right? I mean, the publishing landscape, and I'm going to put on my journal editor hat for a minute, is just really different than it was even 10 years ago, right? And that's because, you know, we used to rely on subscriptions to generate the revenue for journals, and now that's going away, and it's all coming down to these article processing charges that are being paid, right? And that is being exacerbated, not in a bad way necessarily, from an open science perspective, by things like the office of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policies memo yeah. about um, sharing data uh, that was recently uh, written, you know, about a year ago now, and uh, the expectation that NIH is going to have to change the way that um, they're paying for open access fees for publication and those sorts of things. It's a, just a different world than we were in, and I'm not really sure that it's fair to say that uh, journals or that people aren't submitting funding to do reproducibility or replicability studies. It's that the journals know that that's not going to bring in the APCs, right? These mm. article processing charges. And so they're not publishing those kinds of papers with the frequency that they should be, that we should be. And it's because they're not novel. They're not high impact, right? Mm -hmm. When in reality, a confirmational study that shows reproducibility is a hugely important and impactful piece of information, right? And yet it's not going to get the same kinds of citation metrics that an original study will. And so journals recognize that, right? And so now we've got these tiers of journals that are becoming more stratified than they ever have been. And it's a ugly side of science. Anyway, sorry, I don't want to, I'm going to take my editor hat off now because that was totally bringing yeah. me down. Take it, take it off and lock it up. Yeah, I should. <laughs> I should. Anybody here watch uh, What We Do in the Shadows? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No. No. It's like uh, it's like Laszlo's uh. Okay. Hat I didn't know where you're going quite with that. Hat but. made out of witch's skin, right? Oh no. Yeah. So I thought you were just off. making a hard turn from no, no, no. talking about journals. No, but I mean, yeah, there's uh, there's certainly something about vampires in those journals as well. I'm sure. Uh, uh <laughs> yeah. Amazing. You're doing an MD and PhD. That, mm -hmm. like you said, that is so much work, and I have so much respect for you. Your expertise is so unique that you bring to like the research then. Why did you choose this path? It's kind of an interesting story because I didn't start out as an MD-PhD. I started out as an MD student and I did my first two years of med school and I was staring down the barrel of third year, which for people who don't know, that's when you do all your clinical rotations and it's very intense. And I was like, I don't really want to do that right now. Uh -huh. WashU lets you do this thing called an MD5 where you can just slot a research year somewhere into your medical curriculum. And so I did a research year, um, not in the lab that I ended up doing my thesis in. And my mentor for that research year was like, you should apply for the MD PhD. I think that you would really enjoy it. So I was like, sure, I will postpone doing clinical medicine for <laughs> several more years. And also while I was in that lab, I had kind I kind of remembered like, oh, I really do like research. And I had thought that, you know, when I was initially applying for med school, my research experience from undergrad was not enough, which wasn't true. It was I was just getting a touch of the old imposter syndrome. Oh. I re remembered how much I loved research and I applied to uh, go into the MD PhD and they let me in and then COVID happened. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> My PhD is going to be a little bit longer than most because the first part of it was when nobody could be in labs anywhere. Yeah. 
And then at the end of your PhD, you slot back into your clinical year, so... Yes, yeah. That's actually in a little over a year that'll be happening for me. So I'm currently doing experiments to like wrap up my thesis research and then I'll be going back to clinic, which I actually now feel a lot more prepared for. If anyone who's younger than me is listening to this and you're like, man, I feel like my path is all twisty and turny. That's fine. You will end up exactly where you need to be. Mm -hmm. That you couldn't have said that better. You're absolutely correct. I've taken weird paths in my career as well. And uh, I feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. It's not where I thought I would be necessarily, but it's certainly where I feel like I should be. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's really good advice. So at the end of the day, you will have spent quite some time in St. Louis. Yes. Uh, 10 years. 10 years. Uh, at minimum, unless I do residency here too, in which case much more time. <laughs> right, right. So then I have to ask you the question because I am married into a St. Louis family. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I've been... Regular. I've been a regular visitor to that city for mm-hmm. almost thirty years now. Emo's Pizza. No. no okay, that's my reaction <laughs> too. So, well, so no. originally I'm from I'm from the East Coast. I'm from Connecticut, um, and so Connecticut has New Haven Pizza. Yeah, right. We're really close to New York, so we can have like New York City style pizza. I've also come to love like Chicago deep dish pizza yeah. for when you really just want like an entire calzone, so but as pizza. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no. Emo's no. Pizza and the whole genre of cracker crust pizzas is bad. And also the Provel <laughs> cheese is bad. Because it's not provolone, it's weird. No, I agree with you. So I, it's interesting. So I'll come back to that. I will explain that in a second because it's nasty. Um, but I'm going to make a lot of native St. Louisans mad. That's okay, me too. Welcome. <laughs> you can just get right behind me. It's a long line. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. I've been railing on Emo's Pizza for almost 30 years. Um, <laughs> for me, it's not the cracker crust that's the problem. Mm. It's the Provel cheese. Like the cracker crust, I'm not... Pizza shouldn't be a cracker, I agree with you, but yeah. thin-style Chicago pizza, fantastic. So, yeah. and it's got a pretty crispy, thin mm-hmm. crust. It's really the uh, the Provel cheese. So the Provel cheese, is it's a processed cheese, Steffi, that is a mixture of Swiss cheese and provolone, and it has the consistency of melted plastic, and nope. it sticks to the back of your teeth, oh. and it has this weird tang to it. I don't like it. It is straight up nasty. But I live in a house with two native-born St. Louisans, right? My wife and my uh, youngest kid are both from St. Louis, both born there. My oldest and I are not. We don't really care for Emo's Pizza, but like the two that were born there cannot get enough of it. And every time I go to St. Louis, every stinking time I go to St. Louis, we roll in to Grandma's house and there's an Emo's Pizza waiting for us for dinner. I don't have a choice. And I end up, here's, here's how much I dislike Emo's Pizza. I end up eating a salad from a pizza place. Oh, <laughs> because no. It's not, because it's only got a little bit of Provel on it. Uh, they put Provel on the salad, They do, but, you, but it's not melted so you can remove it, right? Yeah. Anyway, all of this is to say Provel is some kind of nasty byproduct of, I'm guessing, fission. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Fusion is, cl- is clean. 
right? Oh, no, no. This, is, this is fission creepy. is oh, nasty, no. and it's got to be buried underground. No. So you're saying that not even a plasma could properly melt a Provel cheese? I'm not sure. No, I teach both of those classes. You can't, you can't knock fission too. I'm not knocking fission. I'm just <laughs> knocking Emo's pizza as a result of fission. <laughs> oh, or some deal with the devil to make mm-hmm. the worst kind of cheese imaginable. Yeah. Are we sure that Emo's pizza is not like a it's not like a bit like people from St. Louis don't actually like it either, but now it's like such a part of their culture. It's like it's like in Philly we all pretend we like those like little corrugated pretzels that are super dry and, and bland, but like it's a it's a Philly thing, so we gotta pretend we like it. Mm. Uh I, I don't know. Or tasty it seems cakes. to be the case. I mean, tasty cakes are good, and I will fight you on that one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. The The people who I've met who are from St. Louis, they are crazy about it. And like, it, it would be a lot, it would be a very large conspiracy for literally everybody who grew up here to all be pretending to like it. Ooh, no. But now let's pretend it is a conspiracy to get those clicks up. That said, <laughs> yes. that said it is also a very St. Louis thing to be in a cult. And so, right? I'm sorry. I don't mean a cult. I mean a click. I mean a click. It's not quite cult status, although it's not too far behind that, right? Being in a cult is like being a Cardinals fan. Being a click in a click is like being an Emos fan or a a Grateful Dead fan. I feel like Emos is more. You have overstepped your bounds here, (laughs) sir. My sister will have words with you. That's right. When she listens to the podcast, she will have words with you. That's right. I'm going to have to add some some dead tracks to this to, That's to, right. as a mea culpa. <laughs> I've got a playlist for you. We have to make this episode four hours long so we can add one Grateful Dead song. That's Lara. right. That's right. All right. That was my question for you, Jamie. It was really about Emo's cool. Pizza. You, it answered, has, it, has about you answered it in one word, and that was beautiful. And it was yes. before it I wasn't g- even a word. It was an expression. Right. Yeah. And it was before I even finished asking the question. Right, I just said Ebo's pizza, and I was going to ask a question, and you just said no. No. <laughs> so in my in my brain, I was like, please don't ask me where I went to high school because I didn't grow up here. No, no, no. <laughs> a little shout out to the Parkway North Vikings. Well, Jamie has officially passed the vibe check. Woo. Well, we'll be back in just a minute with more of the Science Night podcast, but first, a message from another show that I think you're going to enjoy. <laughs> nature your guide to the strange weird unbelievable and improbable wonders of the natural world they make the sound by vigorously rubbing their penis on their abdomen <laughs> oh yeah oh my so, gosh then at night they come out and crawl around your face and mate with each other oh oh but Sorry, get this. i would like to sleep tonight as naturalists Let's face it, we find something dead, we go and we poke it with a stick. I did that with the deer like three weeks ago. As you do. Rachel, Rachel, no, 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 you weren't paying attention. Blood and mucus. Oh, right, sorry. (laughs) All right, this episode is going off the rails. This is the quality content people come here for. (laughs) Strange by Nature podcast was chosen as one of the best science podcasts of 2021. Come join the fun wherever you find your podcasts. So before we get into our first story, I just have a small trigger warning to any of our listeners that may enjoy cannabis. We will be talking about snacks. 
<laughs> that being covered. It's no secret that cannabis increases appetite, and it's why it's often prescribed to cancer patients and patients suffering, suffering from eating disorders. But we didn't exactly know why it does this. But a team from Washington State University is attempting to find the answer. And when they looked at the brains of mice that were exposed to cannabis vapor, they found that a group of cells near the middle of the brain called the arcuate nucleus are turned on. And there was, an also, a, there was also an effect to the hypothalamus, all of which are involved in appetite regulation. So basically, cannabis can turn off the signal that is turning off your appetite. Now we're going to talk to a person who actually knows about neuro. Could be like, James, you've read that totally wrong. And this is why you're neurophobic. So what do we think about, uh, what about, what do we think about these munchies on our mind? I, that, that seems like, that seems like a good description to me. I thought this article was super interesting. Um, and I've never really known what causes the munchies. It seems like scientists didn't either until recently. Um, but yeah, what I want to know is where these neurons are in my brain, because I've actually never had this happen to me. <laughs> right. So I guess that's the other thing we have to say. This was a controlled study in mice. Um, right. I guess the controlled study in humans is more of a self-selected thing. Uh, right. <laughs> but but you're right. You know, it's uh, we're we're looking at a very controlled vapor in a very controlled situation with very controlled electrodes. Myth. Uh, inserted into mouse brains right so i guess we have to throw those caveats up firstly you can't go around inserting electrodes into people's brains you kind of have a problem on your hands if you if you try not legally actually (laughs) actually not even ethically um you can put electrodes into people's brains you just have to have the irb approval to do it Um, (laughs) there i was next door to a lab that did that regularly when i was a postdoc so um kind of crazy people who didn't already have like so i know People who have like Parkinson's, for example, mm-hmm. can sometimes have implanted electrodes, and so then you might do studies on them because you already have the electrodes. So you might as well use them for something other than the Parkinson's. Uh, but you can just put electrodes into people's brains, like who don't already have them. You can, not as long as they're not permanent indwelling ele- electrodes, right? Um, okay. There are there are things that can be done, um, you know, but it has to be justified, right? And it has to go through um, institutional re- review board approval process which always includes someone from the general public as well because if we're doing things that um that you know manipulate people they have to be ethical and mm-hmm. having someone who is outside of the field looking from that thirty thousand foot view um is always helpful in understanding what the ethics of the public are um mm-hmm. because scientists um ethics don't necessarily always align with public ethics. Um, and it's true, public ethics, when I say that, you know, there's no one public ethic either, right? I mean, parts of the Please public. Please see, for example, politics. Right, exactly, exactly. So right. much. Or anything, right? I mean, let's see, for example, cannabis, right? I mean, your state, Missouri, is legal. My, yeah. my state, Indiana, not so much, but every state around me has the munchies. So... <laughs> We're coming for you. That's right. And I would say probably uh, a large proportion of Hoosiers also have the munchies because they live near the borders of those states. Right. Yeah. Pre pre it being legal in Missouri, we just go over to Illinois. That's right. That's right. So I am actually just struck by the fact that you said you've never gotten the munchies. 
I so this is this is a, a, a casual interest of mine. I don't know how I'd ever go about answering this question, but my brain does not respond the same way to cannabis that my you know friends who you know will smoke occasionally do. It sucks. I just skip the the like chill phase entirely and go directly to anxious and paranoid. Ah. There is no like fun stage for me and so there's also no like i'm relaxed and eating food stage (laughs) yeah that makes sense you're in fight or flight mode right (laughs) so like why what's going on up there i don't know maybe 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 eventually someone can take my brain apart and and be like oh look you are missing a whole kind of like receptor for cannabis that means that it just sucks for you all right sorry you opened this door so we're gonna i'm gonna jump through it as a gross anatomist by training and I think James probably deals with this more than I do as a trained mortuary scientist, but I'm constantly thinking about, would I be comfortable donating my body for dissection, um, knowing what happens in the lab? As a neuroscientist, would you consider donating your brain posthumously? Uh, yes. <laughs> this is like not a very difficult question for me. Um, also, I have also done gross dissection being also an MD student. Right. So sure. we have to do dissections and we had my like anatomy group and I had made jokes about like planning to get tattoos that would show you like where to make an incision or like, Oh, the brachial plexus is under here uh, to, to make it easier on the future medical students of the world. So will you uh, donate your body to a gifted body program? Is that, is that the plan? Uh, possibly. I hopefully am a long way way off. Of course. I don't mean but. to um, rock the boat by any, by any stretch here. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to tip the balance in a, in a particular direction. I just wanted to know sort of ethically, what is your, what are your thoughts on that, right? I don't know how I feel. I'm just going to throw that out there. Like the, the other thing is like on my driver's license, I am a like donor. So I guess if, if something were to happen in the way of like a car accident or something, that would probably be what goes, what happens with my organs instead. Mm-hmm. But I hope also... If in the very, you know, sad future that that happens, people in my lab and surrounding labs who are not me, but I, I hope to do this someday, actually study human brain tissue or and like um, human nervous system tissue. And they get it from organ donors who, you know, after the whole procedure has been done to get all of those vital organs that other people badly need out, they go in, they take out like sensory neurons that sit right next to the spinal cord to to record from uh and bring them back to the lab and record from them and can actually learn about how human neurons work how human sensory neurons work all the different like really nitty-gritty properties of these neurons that can help us understand like the ways that they transmit the signals from the periphery up into your brain so that's super cool and if that were to happen and most of my other organs go to people who need them i hope that my you know nervous system organ nervous tissue goes to people who can record from it and be like oh that's fun yeah okay, I, I, learned, I have a question what does record from them mean oh whoa okay so this is actually one of the craziest things and one of my favorite things about neuroscience is if you keep brain and like nervous system tissue in the right kinds of liquids to keep getting them oxygen and nutrients, you can keep the cells alive for a, you know, several hours after they exit the body of whatever organism that they came from. And so then you can take a little like electrode 
and under a microscope you can and using like a little manipulator thing you're not doing this by hand Mm -hmm. um you can take an electrode and you can move it down until it's on you can visualize the cell through the microscope and you can move the electrode down onto the cell or you can put it in like break into the cell Mm -hmm. and then you can actually you know neurons they they their language is electricity they use um different charged atoms in order to change basically you know the electricity that's moving through them that's kind of how they send information is through these like electrical potentials and so you can actually record those through this electrode because it's also conducting electricity and you can find out like if you put more charge into the neuron like how excitable is it how long does it take how much of this charge does it take to get the neuron to like send a signal um or you can find out what's the general resistance of this neuron how basically resistant is it to getting charge put into it and you can learn all these different kinds of properties which can help us then understand how these neurons are working to send signals when they actually are in an organism so that's super cool you can literally just plop an electrode down onto a neuron and then find out its inner life that's amazing so you have to supply the charge or the potential to it it's not stored can i explain electrophysiology in plain english let's find out so kind of yes you can think of a neuron as like part of if you're more electrically minded you can think of it as part of like a circuit like the kind of circuit that you know lights your light bulb uh in lights in your house or whatever you can either kind of monitor what's going on in the neuron at baseline and just see like you know you're just trying to keep it at a neutral state so you're not really doing much of anything to it you're not putting any charge into it you're not doing anything like that and you're just seeing what it's doing and it will do things at baseline as long as it's alive uh, which you're keeping it alive through all these solutions or you can try to like manipulate it you can try to change what its baseline is artificially by injecting this charge like making ions move and then see how the neuron responds to this artificial change in its baseline. So hopefully that makes That's sense. That's amazing. This is the part of neuro that fascinates me and intrigues me and makes me want to get better at it. It's just so mouse forward. It's so mouse <laughs> and rat forward that I, I can't, I really can't. I, Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, and I primarily work with mice. Um, it's, the easiest way to do a lot of the things that you want to do in neuro. Cause you know, first of all, mice are small. They reproduce quickly and people are somewhat less concerned. Like, you know, you still have to go through the IRB and there's still ethics and you shouldn't like mistreat your mice. And that's a very big problem, but also you can do a lot more things to them than you can do to people. And then also, something that's relevant for my work is that people have actually made, they're not mutant mice. There's a better way to put this, but they've messed with the genomes of mice. Uh, They call them transgenic mice. And so you can actually, you can delete genes, you can add genes, you can change what this gene, you know, you can change the sequence of this gene, do all sorts of weird genetic stuff to mice. And it's actually really helpful in being able to more specifically get at like what's going on in this specific gene in this mouse and can we like mess around with it 
that's a reason for the mice, but I agree. And a long-term goal of mine is to actually do some of this work in people. There's a faculty member with my same name in that field. I don't know what field, medical field somewhere. And so I would always get her email for custom knockout mice and like yeah. holiday deals. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Hold hold on. Hold on. I think yeah. we got to we got to we got to go back to Steffi. You can't just say there's another Steffi Deem who is also a scientist. I think they go by the Stephanie. Yeah, Stephanie oh, Deem. I know okay. I've never See, met that, them. That's why they're not in infusion. Right. That makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. Because yep. you're not gonna you're not gonna be Stephanie and be a fusion scientist. That's... Not... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but I think I I agree. I don't know why, but I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't know why, but it is true. It's true. Yeah. Stephanie is a biologist. Steffi. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Exactly. I think we can <laughs> Changes all get everything. That. It's true. More specifically, Stephanie's probably a field biologist, right? I don't know. No. They're rolling in mice. If you if you're ordering knockout mice, probably not. Well, right, except that uh, the name Stephanie. I think I can I can probably name six or seven Stephanies I know who are field biologists, which ah, is just random. Okay. Mm. So this is the outlier Stephanie. That's more of an experimental biologist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be an outlier, right? You know, in my in my head canon, this Stephanie was was a field biologist, um, probably in the American Southwest. I'm gonna say uh, <laughs> looking looking at um, uh, oh, what are they? What do they call them? Fence row lizards, I think. Um, and just they they found out that the dry arid climate wasn't for them. Mm. But they really love the bench research aspect when they got into it, and now they just. Uh, they have a long career using knockout mice. Uh, probably the Brownsville rat, I think, would be a good mix for them. Uh, you know, looking at uh, urine analysis and uh, that sort of thing. This is detailed. Yeah. So really yeah. quickly, before we move on from this, because I agree with that story. I feel like that's the story that careers are made on, right? Um, <laughs> we have introduced a new piece of jargon inadvertently into this. We were talking about transgenic mice a little while ago. Uh, Jamie introduced that concept. Um, yes. Mice that their genomes can be changed. And now we've started talking about knockout mice. Oh, sure. And we didn't explain what that means because there's also knock-in mice, right? I so, don't know what it means. And I got so many ads. That's precisely why you got the ads. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get all those ads too. I don't know what they mean. Um, <laughs> but uh, when you knock out a gene, you remove the function of that gene from you know, whatever environment you're trying to remove it from, whether it's the whole genome, whether it's a particular cell type, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and you can also knock in genes, meaning you can turn on genes that are not there or put genes in that were not there, um, you know, or, or turn ones on that are not active in that particular area. And so it's really interesting how you can manipulate. And you do a lot of this actually with CRISPR, um, which is uh, what Jamie spoke about earlier, right? Um, so it's amazing to me how much this field has changed since I've been a faculty member for 16 years, right? Um, because when I first started, transgenic mice um, were ex- really expensive to make. And now they are not that expensive to make anymore. I mean, they're still expensive compared to like going to the gas station and, you know, if, buying a pack of gum. Right. But um, if you want to make speaking, a new transgenic mouse, it's still annoying. Correct. Like if there's not an existing mouse that does what you want it to do and you have to make a new one. It's like a whole PhD project and right. also a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible idea for a PhD project, for sure. Because at the yes. end of the day, you've learned how to do one thing, <laughs> right? Yep. Really well. And you've had to do it 
over and over and over. That's right. That's right. It doesn't really uh, set you up to succeed unless your job is going to be to make new transgenic mice for the rest of your career, which you can make. Yeah, you can make a career doing that. Um, But it's not usually what people go into bench science to do. No. Right. They have, you know, pie in the sky dreams. So not rodent (laughs) under the microscope dreams. Another thing you so, said, actually, that really intrigued me, uh, Jamie, was uh, you're talking about why you use mice instead of humans, right? And one of the things you said is that you can do a lot more things to mice than you can do to humans. And I want to push back just a little bit on that. Um, you're not wrong, but you're also not entirely correct in this one. And that's because um, you can actually do the same things to animals that you can, or to people that you can do to animals. It's just harder to get them approved to do in animals because animals can't consent right and so you can convince a human to do to let you do anything um that's an ethical issue in and of itself right um coercion cannot be part of this um but they can consent a mouse cannot consent and so to be able to do the kinds of things um in an animal that you would want to do in a human or vice versa it's always harder to get it approved to do in an animal because they can't consent for themselves but you can mm. still do very invasive things to humans because they can consent. Um, it just has to be a very good reason for it. Yeah. So this goes back to that discussion about electrodes in the brain, right? And whether you can plant, implant electrodes in the brain that are permanent or not permanent. And you brought up this idea of Parkinson's patients, right? Who have deep mm-hmm. brain stimulation. So they have these electrodes embedded deeply into their brains. And they have these two like knobs basically on the top of their skull where you can see the healing has happened where these two electrodes have been placed um you know to be able to do that required the research approvals to be able to do that the first time right that is incredibly invasive um and you don't get any more invasive than something like that sticking an electrode permanently into someone's brain but the benefit of that deep brain stimulation um at least from the experience that I have had, which was uh, I had a professor in grad school who who had this procedure done, and mm-hmm. it basically turned back the um, symptoms of Parkinson's by about 10 years mm-hmm. for at least a few years, um, and quality of life, right, improved incredibly. And so that's, that's why you can do really invasive things to people, but you, you know, you have to you have to get them to consent to do it first, right? So it's not right. that you can't do those things in humans. It's just that it's harder to right. get them to consent, right? Right. And, you know, obviously there are also drawbacks to using mice. Absolutely. Um, the, like, bigwig researcher in my department um, loves to say that mice are not tiny humans. Mm-hmm. You can't... So that's relevant, actually, to the article. Yeah. Um, which I will I will help you all by bringing it back into the article, uh, is that mice aren't tiny humans. And so, like, you can learn a lot of really interesting things in neuroscience and in biology in general by looking at mice. Because they are mammals, so there are some similarities in terms of the structure of their brain and nervous system, for example. They have, by and large, very similar brain structures to us. They have the same kind of brain spinal cord layout. But there are differences. And so one of them that I was kind of going to bring up that is kind of crossing between like neuroscience and like psychology is that like the setting of like these mice getting the cannabis is very different from when most humans will like consume cannabis and why most humans will consume cannabis. And so like you can't really replicate you know 
people hanging out at somebody's house or at a party and smoking in mice, right? You're just kind of, yeah, vaporizing the cannabis at them. It kind of does the same thing. So it can maybe tell us about like part of the reason why that, you know, people get hungry when they consume cannabis. But, you know, it also can't tell us the entire reason because they're mice. Ooh, I get to bring anthro into it now. Yay. So we're learning, we're learning like, we're learning the circuitry of, mm-hmm. of how cannabis affects the, the literal mechanisms in the brain. But when you kind of bring that out to humans and you add in the culture of the consumption and all the practices around that, whether it be recreational or in certain cultures, part of some kind of, of community experience or, or religious thing or something, there's all these other factors to it. So you're totally right where like we know that the cannabis is going to affect this clump of cells that kind of works in this mosaic, but then there's all this other human stuff that we put on top of it too. Um, which was what I was thinking about when I was reading this article because I was just trying to to not think about mice because <laughs> boy, am I afraid of those little guys. You know, oh no. <laughs> what I was thinking about actually in this, uh, when I read this story was, uh, was when I was taking, um, we had Carol Ward on the podcast not not that long ago, and we were at Gen Con, right? And she, you know, if you recall, she is a. You all were at Gen Con. Yeah, oh yeah we, we go, go to Gen every Con year. every year. Were you Do at you Gen, Gen Con too? I was. Yeah. <gasps> all right. Missed opportunities. Uh, Did you go to the Science of Science Fiction presented by Indiana Sciences? Oh man, I should have. I don't remember what I was doing at the time, but we I saw that panel. it was. Yeah, we did that's the awesome. panel yeah. over there. You could have got a koozie. <laughs> Okay, anyway, you were at Gen Con. We had Carol Ward on the podcast. It reminded me of when I took uh, Carol Ward's Intro to Human Origins course um, when I was in an undergrad. I was studying really, really hard for this final exam, and my roommate, just want to give a shout out to Buff. That's what he calls himself. What's up, Buff Daddy? <laughs> um, oh my, <laughs> my roommate in college was uh, consuming cannabis at a rate that was, you know, probably not safe for like an elephant. Um, and, uh, but I was studying really hard for this final, right? And I went in and I, that was my area. I, I know that stuff, or I used to know that stuff like the back of my hand and I bombed the final, right? And it's because of all of the secondhand smoke that I was, uh, that I was exposed to while I was trying to study and then didn't take my exam in the same state, right? Ah. Um, I think there's some truth to that. And so this, you know, vaporizing the smoke for these mice reminded me of secondhand smoke, right? Mm. It isn't, so there was a real point to this, and that is that it wasn't the active consumption of cannabis in this case, but the passive consumption of cannabis um, that was actually happening. I wonder whether that makes a difference, right? Um, at least in mm. humans, right? If you are intentionally doing something versus unintentionally doing something, does it, is there something that's going to uh, modulate a response, right? Deeply rooted in our nervous system somewhere. And I suspect the answer might be yes. Right. I mean, we have all of these things, as you alluded to earlier, Jamie, um, you know, we have ways of tamping down um, our our perception of pain and tamping up our perception of pain, depending on a situation and whether it's worth our effort to know it's there or not know it's there um, Mm -hmm. in that instant. And I wonder if there's something to that, too, with appetite. You have you have to come to the situation ready to be uh, to have your appetite stimulated or not in order for it to work. So, so this is something that I was thinking about when I was reading this, which was that they kept bringing up the use case of treatment for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. 
end. I would need to do more research on this, but I am skeptical for this reason. And also for the reason of you would have to get the patients to consent to consume something that they think might make them eat, which would be a challenge in and of itself. But I am skeptical that if they are not coming to the experience with the frame of mind of wanting to have the whole experience of having the munchies and everything, that that would actually work out well. Interesting. And I actually, I remember talking to, and so this is why I need to look into this more, because I'm not entirely sure how common practice this is. Because I remember asking somebody, like a, like an eating disorder treatment, like physician, if this was something that they did. And they're like, you know, sometimes, but not always, and mostly for reasons of consent, right? Like, you're telling this person who, like, does not want to eat, that you're going to give them something that's going to make them want to eat? Like, that's going to be really tricky unless they're at a particular place in their like recovery and their mindset. But yeah, I'm not so sure again, because of that whole, you know, the passive versus active consumption and the like mindset of it, that that would be as effective as these researchers seem to think it is. And so to me, it came across as like, Oh, this is the way we can tie it back into something that people know about and understand, but maybe doesn't have, that much grounding in clinical practice probably also depends on how you frame that right like uh, hey right. please take this um, THC supplement it's going to help stimulate your appetite versus why don't you take this THC supplement you're gonna blaze through this plate of nachos right yeah <laughs> like very different very different sounds very different right. um, approach right and uh, I'm wondering if there's something to the, the way that that is conveyed as well people are complicated right, right? and so um, you never know what's going to tip the balance in one direction or the other. Right, exactly. And then, you know, you could you could accidentally, like, trigger a pretty bad experience. Like, if, if someone had given me <laughs> THC as, like, a treatment and I was, like, you know, discovered in the worst way possible that it just makes me super paranoid. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> this is awful. I have really weird reactions to drugs, too. Like, just in general, all of them. So yeah, I'd be right there with you. So there's there's another story that we were going to talk about, uh, but then Jason went on his pizza rant, where <laughs> they created a VR rig for mice and rats to experience the outdoors, but in an internal, uh, an internal environment. And Jason, I'm sure you're going to riff on this uh, cannabis story right now, right? Yeah. Well, I just wonder why there isn't the follow-up study where you vaporize cannabis and then give the mice these little tiny VR headsets and see if they get better at Overwatch. Mm-hmm. I, oh. <laughs> I don't understand why that story, why that study hasn't been done, right? I mean, we're talking about making little tiny VR headsets for mice. It's amazing because the, the, the researchers are actually trying to reduce the number of variables they can't control for in the wild, like in a, in a field environment. But as someone who has done field work with, you know, electrophysiology involved, it's not impossible to do this. And um, right. I didn't understand why there was suddenly an inability to study the things in the wild that we'd like to study. So we have to build a virtual environment to simulate that. Um, was like the the thrust of this paper, right? I mean, I think it's amazing that we can do the kinds of things that we can do. And I have no problem doing science for science sake, but this gets back at the question as, uh, you know, about um, sort of impact, right? There's a headline about this story, but at the end of the day, 
it's way too premature to say anything about the utility of this kind of work, right? There's probably a very good use for this work, but just to point out that you can build headsets, VR headsets, mm -hmm. to simulate a natural environment for mice seems like that horse is out of the stall way too early, out of the barn way too early on this one. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem with sort of that sensationalism of science, right? I mean, people are going to see these kinds of studies. And it's, again, I am not knocking the science. I am sure there's a very important end goal for this work um, that just wasn't reflected in this particular story because we're not there yet, right? But the public then sees those things, right? And they get confused. Um, and then when you get politicians saying, why are we funding this kind of work, right? And calling out individual grants by name on the floor of Congress, right? We get a lot of mixed messages that undermines um, the importance of science to evidence-based policy decisions. And so it's frustrating to me. I love that this has been done. I don't like that this is getting press yet because it's not there yet. It's not ready for prime time, right? Right. Not everything is a huge leap forward. This one is a huge leap forward for stoner mice, but that connection <laughs> was missed. One small step for... Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Next, is the follow-up study going to be uh, miniature tape recorders so that they can be ingrained into the culture of creating their Grateful Dead uh, live tapes and start getting into that community? Like maybe a little backpack they can put on with a with a cassette recorder on the back? Those you already exist, actually. brought it back actually. to Grateful Dead. They already exist. Yeah. Those things already exist. Little backpacks that they can wear, that can hold weights, that can hold um, telemetry okay. equipment so that you can... Yeah. You know, there's measure. a there's a lab on my floor. Um, one of my friends works in it. That yeah, they give the mice backpacks and it holds. Um, they do like IV self administration stuff. So the backpack holds the like little IV tubing, and they can press a lever and get. I think it's opioids, um, just through through IV. But right. yeah, uh, mouse backpacks. It felt so yeah. What what this what this study felt like to me is it felt like someone. It's like inside baseball, right? It's like they took something that like researchers will use um and i actually know some people who use like similar mouse vr type stuff because it is time prohibitive in addition to like mm -hmm. um difficult to sort of figure out the logistics to bring a mouse into a naturalistic setting and have it do its thing right you would have to find somewhere like that and go bring the mouse there but it felt like this is something that's inside baseball that's like something that re is important for researchers but it sounded cool enough to a science editor at this at this website that they were like, let's tell everybody about it, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I support telling the public about science. But, yeah, I think I agree with Jason that it's kind of devoid of the context that it's useful for. And it's just like, look at this cool mouse VR thing and not look at all these cool questions that we can answer because we now have this mouse VR mm -hmm. thing. Totally agree. I just I was really sort of off-put by the setup that we can't do things in the wild. Well, that's not entirely true. It's time-intensive. It's energy-intensive to do those things. And sometimes it is easier to do something like this than it is to find an environment that you could, that would be perfect to run the experiment. But trust in the process can be lost when these black and white sort of statements are made. Um, that really just really frustrates me. There's a lot of nuance, and we talk about nuance all the time here. Um, and that's that nuance is what makes the discussion of science with the public 
so much more enriching. Um, but it's also what turns off the public immediately because they see contradictory things, um, you know, day to day, right? Like coffee is great for you. Coffee is terrible mm. for you. Coffee's no, coffee's not as bad for you today as it was yesterday, but it's still not great, right? What am I supposed to make out of that, right? Not everything, like you said, Jamie, is a headline here, right? Sometimes it's just incremental changes in the nuance. And um, when we don't have that context there, we, we miss out. Maybe this is actually the the internal arc of our character Stephanie Deem, bench scientist, where she was doing her mouse work outside in a park and she was sick of controlling for falcons. So she yeah. uh, created a went went indoors and created With a VR word for her mice. knockout mice. Yeah. Many of the articles have an illustrator's whatever vision of what this looks like of a mouse wearing VR glasses. You have to dig really hard to see what it actually is. Yeah. And this gets me all the time for these articles. There's like, and you'll see this for fusion. It's like artist's conception of a magnetic confinement device for fusion. I'm like, we have them. You can use a picture of the real science. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get consent of the mouse to be uh, photographed. Especially in that state. This is actually true, is that I can't take pictures of my mice. Oh, really? Mostly, yeah, mostly because of like... PETA reasons mm-hmm. um, oh. that like if you start sharing photos of mice on your social media then like all of the animal rights groups will get wind of it and then all of a sudden you'll have massive protests outside of your university because you posted a picture of a mouse with like a little you know electrode sticking out of its mm-hmm. skull and people got upset about it so you have to okay. get specific permission to use these photos in like if you need them for a uh, paper for example but you oh. can't share them publicly right but okay. you can get That's an illustrator to, to to draw, draw what it. that looks like and yes. that is perfectly fine and it, yep. it avoids a lot of those problems right can we at least get a picture of the vr goggles they don't have so to be in a i did an internet search for it and i found a picture of um of a mouse with the vr goggles and every single time i found it, it was just joe biden with his aviator glasses on i'm telling no. you no <laughs> <laughs> well I think the fact that we're talking about Joe Biden and aviator glaces means we've come to the end of another edition of the Science Night Podcast, but don't worry, we got more coming your way, unless we got canceled on the internet for for this episode. For but all anyways. reasons, all reasons. <laughs> I think that's the reason you should be following us on social media if you want to follow me. I'm on Twitter, I guess. I'm, I'm still calling it Twitter. I can't stop calling it Twitter. I'm on Twitter at James underscore read three, where you can see me switching gears to basketball because the Eagles let me down yet again. So anyway, Steffi, where can everybody follow you? I don't know. That X Twitter thing, Steffi Deem, um, Instagram, Starship. And I also started a new Instagram account that's more fusion all the time. Fusion Deem. So there you go. There we go. We'll link to that as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Jason, where can we find you? You can find me on what used to be called Twitter. Is that better? Uh, at Oregon JM. Enter at your own risk. And Jamie, tell us all about where we can find you and your podcast. So um, I am on Twitter. I use my personal account more than I use my my podcast account. So you can my personal is that brass T H A T B R A S S. My podcast account is Plain English Sci, P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-A-S-C-I. Um, and you can find the podcast um, in Plain English if you search in Plain English Science in any of the places you get podcasts. 
and we have a website where we post the papers that we discuss at um, inplainenglishpod.org. Well, you can follow the show at SciNightPod and visit our home on the web at SciNight.com, where you have links to all of the articles we cover, the people we talk to, and of course, our merch. There's so much to see. You can see it all at SciNight.com. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on with us today. We had a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you. This was a really awesome way to start my day. Or end it. Wait, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a liminal space. That once yeah. you enter once you enter cyanide, there is no night or evening or morning or afternoon. There just is the pod. Uh, and I think that means we're gonna be back in two weeks with a new episode. So until then, have a great whatever time it currently is. It may be night. It may be morning. I don't know. Depends. Maybe you're eating lunch. Maybe you're driving in your car. And if you're driving in your car, just pay attention to the road, please. There's so many accidents when I get that I'm, I am hilarious. And I get that you're going to get a laughing fit. He can tell you when the D is missing. <laughs> That's right.